За окном война, ты спросишь, или тяжело? Отвечу, ну да. А ты как-то держись, моя любимая страна. Мы обязательно встретимся возле большого костра. Слово Украине, слово They're ordinary people that didn't ask to go through this, but they're stepping up in a major way. Non-stop amazing patriotism and rallying to take care of each other. You see here in Ukraine, it's unbelievable. The rise of autocracy is, is the end of us. It's the end of us all over again. These are all the conditions that created World War II. They already changed forever. They are kids of war. They will remember for the end of their life. Only the people who went through this occupation will understand the feeling. No electricity, no water, no food, no money, but the main thing, no Russian. <laughs> We don't care all the rest as soon as there's no Russian. You're listening to J.D. Off-Leash, Inside Ukraine. I'm okay. actor, writer, and director, um, film and television, which is uh, something I've been avoiding for a few years recently because of, uh, first of all, COVID. And secondly, I've found myself in Ukraine a few times. Yeah. So Now, how does somebody go from being a Hollywood or writer, actor, to being in Ukraine a few times in the last few years? Well, um, I, I was a... Studio art major at Vassar College, of all places, okay. and uh, took a very unconventional and non-traditional track and joined the Marine Corps Infantry. Not the usual pipeline to uh, no, screenwriting. No, I was trying to weaponize art, <laughs> and uh, so I went to the Marine Corps and served as an infantry officer down in um, Camp Lejeune for uh, extend my first contract, about three and a half years. Um, With the 2nd Battalion, 8th Marines, did a pump to Okinawa. Peace was uh, pervasive at the time. With the exception of Jacksonville, North Carolina. Which is, of course, <laughs> always at war with itself. Yeah. Although it's a much nicer place than it was back then. Yeah, that's actually where I lived before coming over here. Well, not Jacksonville, but Raleigh, uh, North Carolina. So I'm, I'm familiar. I'll put it that way. Yeah, Jacksonville's a, a little bit of a step down from... A little bit. Yeah. And it's had 20 years of war to feed it. So I yeah. think Jacksonville is a much different um, place than it was at the time. And uh, I left active duty. And uh, it turned out that a, my unit, the, the battalion, was working up for a Medi Mediterranean float. And um, I left just before that. So they were doing their last training. Um, and it was a helicopter you know, jump from one of the ships in the bay and uh, the, the unit I had just left uh, suffered uh, all the casualties on a 46. It went down in a swamp. Uh, Cobra flew up into it from underneath. Oh my God. Last day of the operation. And I had just been the XO of a unit where all the casualties were from. So my first, uh, my first thing I did as a civilian was get dressed in blue. Jeez. And, uh, and bury our communications officer at, uh, at a very 
it was a strange time in my life to already to go from, it was a strange transition, I got to say, from going from Vassar, which is a very liberal institution, to the Marines, which is a very rigorous, conservative. Ever so slightly right wing. Yes. Well, it's not even, it's not even at the, yeah. that it was right wing at the time. Yeah. It was far less political. Um, the military was far less political. But it certainly was um, far more regimented and conservative mm -hmm. in almost every way. Uh, the transition from, from being a long-haired artist at Vassar to the Marine Corps was without any trauma at all. Somehow I just immediately adapted to it. But leaving the military was very difficult. Well, it always is. That transition from, and it has to do with that structure and the fulfillment you get from having a place in that structure um, to the civilian world is always difficult. So dealing with a traumatic situation like that, uh, along with it, I can't imagine that had to compound it. How, how long had you been out when that happened? Uh, just a few weeks. Jesus. Uh, it was the first, the first thing I'd done as a civilian was become a Marine again to bury a Marine. And uh, I immediately joined the reserves. Okay. So you went into the reserves. Let, let me back up real quick. What did take you from being a long-haired artist at a liberal institution to joining the Marines? What was the motivating factor in the first place to join the Marines? I, I had always been a martial creature. Uh, I'd always been attracted to it. And it's more romance than anything else. You know, the, uh, the calling of, of, uh, of knighthood uh, weighed heavily on me as a boy. And I, I'd, I'd visited England with my parents, and uh, they were very—they were very much born of. They're both war babies, 1941. Both of the, their parents, my grandparents, uh, my mother's father had been a Marine in Guadalcanal. My father's father had been in the 10th Mountain Division in the Italian Alps. Okay. And uh, both of them came of age. My mother was a librarian. My father was a was a teacher. A professor at Colgate, and um, they rigorously protested the Vietnam War. Uh, so they were, as being war babies who had admired their parents in right. that war, the clarity of it, were very much against the Vietnam War. And so they raised me uh, in, in that light right, to, right. Uh, to be, uh, not that they were against military service but they were just against, that particular they were against what militaries do right you know yeah. and it's understandable and it actually makes a pretty well-rounded individual to have grandparents with that caliber and then also have parents with that mental fortitude to recognize the difference between uh believing in somebody that's you know sacrificing for their country and dedicating themselves to something doesn't just give you a blanket well all war is good so that's good right um and so that's, that's a different drawn. generation, too. That creates a different kind of pedigree, um, yeah. that World War II generation. In yeah. fact, it's, I still wear, anytime I'm somewhere that could be dangerous, this was my grandfather's uh, POW identifier. Wow. He was in World War II. He got shot down. Uh, he was a tail gunner. Got shot down and was in a prison camp for a while. So, so in Europe? Uh, yeah, yeah, in Germany. And so I've held on to this, and anytime I've deployed in the military, and then it had sat in a shelf for quite some time before I came over to Ukraine. I was like, I think I'm going to put that thing back on. So it's my little good luck charm. I took a silver dollar that my uh, my mother's father from Guadalcanal and yeah. kept him kept yeah. him safe. Yeah. Uh, and I, I carry it with me in my my uh, my pocket. Yeah, I'm not superstitious about anything except war. <laughs> war, I'm extraordinarily superstitious. There's something about it. It's strange. Um, you yeah. know, it's it, the, the environment creates um, the, the kind of hyper awareness we all talk about. But I think there's something to it. There are some days where I just felt the air changed. 
there was something in the energy, the electricity yeah. of just the atoms. It was it became atomic. That today's bad, yeah. and I was almost always right. Yeah. And I can't explain that because. Yeah. Well, we can go down a whole rabbit trail there because that's yeah. a that's like a side obsession of mine. Uh, you know, people talk about a sixth sense, and and in my opinion, it's like a heightened fifth sense or heightened version of your five senses, I should say. Yeah. I don't think it's that far off to believe that our brain is processing all kinds of data uh, that we have no idea it's processing as far as, you know, like you just said, air pressure change at this time of day with the sun in that corner and this happening. Well, this happened once before in life and this is what was going on. And we don't even realize we processed all that information. But Somewhere in the DNA, yeah. it, it recorded uh, this as a survival. Right. Uh, and, and like you said, when you're in a survive mode, um, that's very heightened and you're in, t- in tune with it. So yeah, I agree. So I, in my last, uh, in between my junior and senior year of college, I, uh, I went to the Marine Corps um, officer candidate school. It's about you know, 14 weeks or whatever it was of just being thrashed as evaluation, trying to get rid of us, which I, I actually appreciated. Uh, they didn't care if they didn't get any of us out of it. Uh, it, was, it was not a commissioning ceremony. It was just to see if you have certain traits and, and abilities and thresholds, which um, are valuable to being an infantry officer, Marine Corps officer. And I, some, at some points, I wasn't sure I was going to make it just because of you know, injuries and fatigue and everything else. It was really rigorous, and um, I've used rigorous twice already. Did you, uh, did you face any special rigorous treatment given the fact you were coming from a liberal college and uh, hopefully you'd already cut your hair before you showed up, but did any of that come up? Did, uh, did you get any special treatment, air quotes? I did. Uh, yeah. I did because, uh, you know, I don't know what you know about Vassar, but uh, it had been a women's college up until uh, 1969 yeah. and was one of the seven sisters. And uh, President Bush, the first, was president at the time. And um, so I was president of my class. So I was a President Bush and I was from Vassar. So the drill instructors began to call me women's college. <laughs> president so, Bush from a woman's college. Yeah. All right. It was, uh, it was, it was, it was tough on everyone. Nobody got out yeah. of there uh, without. They, that's kind of why I asked is they typically do find something in everybody. Yeah. And that one's. Probably an easy, low-hanging fruit for them. Yeah. It was it was entirely yeah, 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 the, yeah. the lowest fruit. Yeah, and I didn't even put together the President Bush thing. So, yeah. They uh, did yeah. pretty quickly. Yeah. All right. So, you get commissioned. Yep. And your first assignment is? Well, I went to, oh, I, I got what I wanted. I wanted to be an infantry officer. Mm-hmm. And so, I went to IOC, the infantry officer course, which is also pretty brutal and great. I, uh, I actually really enjoyed um, the, the kind of Spartan nature of it. And uh, how it how it forms you into being someone in charge of both momentum and uh, survival, and you know these are these are two things I haven't had to worry about. I had parents, mm-hmm. you know, right. as a anyone who comes out of college is just a you know someone coming out of camp for four years, oh. and so um, I went from there to Camp Lejeune and picked up my first platoon, and. You know, my, my concern always, and I think anyone who's worth worth being an officer should have this on their mind all the time, uh, that I was never worthy of command, that I was never worthy of, uh, of any of those burdens which you are expected to hold above you. Um, so it was this constant need to earn that, um, that mantle and, yep. never, and never believing that I deserved it. 
so I worked really hard. I was very, I was a very serious um, young young lieutenant, um, and I, I think it changed me entirely. Uh, I went from being far more uh, random and um, you know and non-specific to being had to define yourself regimented yeah. and you know. <clears throat> And, and I, I worry, you know, that I that I lost some of my fringe, some of the things that made me interesting for a while, because I was so concerned about perception, about uh, about not failing, uh, you know, not being strong enough, not you know, not uh, not being not being what anyone thought um, I had to be in, the, in that position. Yeah. And uh, I don't think I ever really shook all that. I think that's one of the. Um probably least talked about effects, not just of, you know, combat service, but serving in the military. Um, and, uh, you know, it would be the same in um, sort of some high-pressure corporate jobs. But when you go into a role where there's just this unbelievable expectation of not only what you need to accomplish, but who you have to be as an identity, right. um, like you just said, if you spend years of your life shaving away parts of your characteristics and parts of what makes you you, um, in order to fill that specific role, uh, it creates it creates a situation when you get out. You know, you're you're kind of finding yourself all over again. Like, hold on a second, am I this new person that I took on this identity, or was right. this a role that I had uh, just in that specific area? And now it's time to re-embrace some of my old character traits. And most of that's happening without you even thinking about it. Like, you're not actually sitting down and thinking it through the way I just said it. That's just kind of that mental turmoil that goes on. Um, and yeah, that's probably something that's one of the most untalked about difficulties of transitioning out. And I often say that's one of the most untalked about problems that vets face is actually not trauma. It's the experience of going from military to civilian in general. Yeah. And also, I'm sure you've talked about this plenty of times with other veterans, but uh, the sense that uh, the sense of necessity mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, that sense of purpose, we would say is a simple term. Right. But, um, but the idea that uh, you are necessary to something, yeah. that without you, uh, something breaks. Yeah. And even though you'll be replaced, even though the machine continues to, to throw its parts and get new ones immediately as replacements, um, the idea that you are... Um, You're a part of something and, you and you're needed. On some and, that's, yeah. and that's the important thing. You begin to take on uh, this false sense of uh, not just obligation and responsibility, but um, going back to that word, necessity. Mm -hmm. The idea that uh, you are a critical component. And, um, and like I said, even though there are many of you, yeah. you find that self-importance. Yeah. The idea that, uh, that it needs you. And because of that, purpose just forms around you as well as the the simple pressure of of that that obligation to to lead to divine the best solutions to things uh, even though you're team building all the time and most of your best ideas are coming up to you if you're any good you know a, a lance corporal who has to spend all day doing a menial task is going to find the best way to do it right that's true and if you don't listen to their best idea you're an idiot yeah. You know, that's how you change your SOPs. All my SOPs, for the most part, came up from Lance Corporals and Corporals and Sergeants who were like, hey, you know, sir, <laughs> I understand what you want me to do here, yeah. and I appreciate the way you've told me to do it, but uh, what if we did this way? And I, I always knew 
the, the officers that I was going to have the most problem with when they would dismiss those ideas. Yeah. Um, not in the moment. If you're doing things in a hurry, I can see that. But right. over the long term, uh, I, I, I just got better and better, not, not from within, but yeah. from without. And I, I think that was important to learn. And also that, that, that helped me transition in later on uh, as an artist. I, you know, I have to put together a, a film crew. Have to put together a cast, and if you are, you know, an automaton and a, a singular autocratic leader, um, it's it's problematic when dealing with a whole bunch of individual artistic specialties yeah. that you have to be able to create and uh, and articulate um, the tasks for. You know, I, I'm talking to a I'm talking to the the gaffer who sets the lights in very specific terms. And that's a that's a whole different relationship. It's like talking to this squad, right? Yeah. And then this squad has a yeah, yeah. different thing to do. So it it helped me become become a far more effective organizational leader. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you were probably a damn good officer then, because you just said it. Like some officers take that route, uh, and then some officers take the I can't let anyone think that I don't know the best way to do absolutely everything. So even if I know that there's a more efficient way, I've got to. Toe the line. So uh, that's great. I had probably my favorite um, officer. We were in Iraq, mm-hmm. and uh, it was my third tour. I was an NCOIC. I wasn't. I wasn't listed. And this officer comes up to me after showing up and putting on a hard face when he was talking to everybody. Pulled me aside and he was like, "Hey, he's like, between you and me, I don't feel like I belong in the position I'm in. I've never been here. You guys have been here a lot, like." Just know that, you know, I've got to, you know, fill my role and show the authority, but I, I'm all ears for input and everything. And I told him, I said, well, you just already made yourself one of the best officers in the AL. It's like, what do you mean? I was like, you just showed the willingness to learn from the people that have been there while still maintaining your authority and being the decision maker. So you're good. I know you're nervous and you don't think you're good, but just what you said right there means that you're good. You're going to be fine. So, yeah. yeah, and you'll never know. I, I, I'll yeah. never know if I was a good officer, really. You know, that's that's going to be evaluated by when I was a lieutenant by thirty-seven Marines, uh, yeah. all individually and then sometimes collectively. Yeah, yeah. And um, and your successes will will diminish over time, but your your failures will live forever, yeah. <laughs> in some ways. And then as a company commander, uh, you know, in two thousand three, I led a light armor reconnaissance company into Iraq with the initial invasion task force Tarawa. And then I ended up getting kind of marooned on the Iranian border with, uh, you know, with 150 miles of Iran to deal with because everyone rushed to Baghdad yep. and no one was thinking about what happens next. And so I became the provisional military mayor of a number of small village towns, which had also been ignored even by Saddam because of their lack of importance. Right, right. And so uh, it was my first time to really test what democracy means. How do I begin to articulate that to uh, people who are largely tribal. Yeah, and in that region for sure. And is it even yeah. is it even something they're interested in receiving? If they have a tribal society, aren't they already done? Yeah, and if you, you mentioned everybody rushing to Baghdad, so this is early in the war that you're talking about. 2003, yeah, the invasion. Yeah. And then I went, <laughs> I came back from that tour. Um, I got on the HBO series The Wire as uh, Officer Anthony Cliccio. Did a season three. How did I not know all of this? You're coming in here and doing this podcast. I should have done better research. This is exciting. It's good I, stuff. I like to excite on, yeah. on on site. So I did a season uh, season three with that, and then I went 
back to Iraq with um, a civil affairs group, and it's not it's not public affairs; it's civil affairs, it's infrastructure right. people. You know, how right. do we uh, how do we put in um, you know power and uh, power water systems yeah. water and deal with uh, the regional politics, which was one of the toughest jobs in Iraq. It was a miserable yeah. job, yeah. And uh, so I went with 1-5, the 1st Battalion, 5th Marines, to Hurricane Point, Ramadi, which at the time uh, was a tremendously embattled city. There was, there was no winning something there until they paid off the sheiks, which they did the year after we left, and the, you know, the Arab uprising. But um, at the time, Ramadi, Ramadi was pretty much hell on earth. And we went out every day. And uh, we had like 137 wounded 27 killed in six months um, with one five. So that was a very haunting tour. And um, I came back to the death of both my parents just within a year. Oh my God. Died. And so I left the military. I was like, um, and everyone always thinks that was insane because I was 16 years in, you know, four more and you can retire six more for, I guess, reserves at 62, you know, 62. So um, I, uh, and I, I guess I could have taken a staff job and, and stayed at home, but uh, there was no one to take care of my family. I had a baby girl at the time on my second tour, and I, I'd seen her born, and then I'd left. So, um, you know, you have to make a decision at a certain point. And we, we talk about the, sel- uh, you know, the selflessness of service, how we go forth for our nation, and how it's kind of considered this great sacrifice of, of self. What we don't talk about very much is the better you get at it, the more you want it. Yeah. You want to use your skill. And um, the more you're presented with the, you know, the idea that, um, that you're built for combat, and if you're capable, you should be in combat, that if you're not, um, somehow you're, you're wasting something Tremendous, and I so I, I I couldn't I couldn't not be a uh, you know a combatant leader of some kind. I couldn't be in, I couldn't not be involved in a war that was ongoing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I had to leave the military entirely. Yeah, no, it's I've said before, in my opinion, the sacrifice and the selflessness and the wanting to do something for something bigger than you is the is the motivation to join. So, so it is a it is a quality that you see in most people that join the military. But like you just said, it evolves from there. It's that decision to yeah. join um, is where that that service takes place. After that, um, it takes on a very personal, uh, said it, sense of purpose that you start to build upon. And I'm not going to call it a selfish endeavor, but at some point, it becomes something that you need. It's something that that makes you feel fulfilled. So. So you're doing it, you know, you're doing a service to your country, but you're also doing it because, like you said, you have found a sense of purpose, and anything less than that doesn't feel fulfilling. Yeah. Well, you, you actually hit on it where I was going, is you go from this this idea, I think it's more idealistic than it is uh, realistic, This that you're selfless, and then it becomes selfish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I wasn't going to be the one to use the word, so I'll thanks for it. being the guy to say it, but I'm, yeah. I'm happy yeah. to do it because yeah. I felt it. I, yeah. I began to, to, to make decisions that I felt myself. I'm choosing the Marines over my family. Yeah. I'm, you know, and people do it all the time. You know, yeah. I don't have to deploy, but I want to deploy. So I'm going to leave my family and deploy. And that's a, yeah. that's a selfish thing. And uh, the two of them kind of get, uh, you know, 
I, I think we've, we, as society and as, uh, and as an organization, we like to choose the one term, but, yeah. but it does become the other. And, um, and I had to, I, you know, I came to that point where I thought, okay, uh, I'll either continue to deploy until they bring me under a flag or we win. Um, or I should, I should leave. It was never about benefits in the first place. I never thought I was going to be a career officer. I never thought that this was going to be something I'd, yeah. I'd retire from. Um, I, I had to sever it completely. And the, the bizarre thing is I came back from my second tour in Ramadi. I'd been wounded. Everyone had been wounded. And um, I, f I finished up the next season of The Wire. And then of all things, they'd sent me a book called Generation Kill by Evan Wright. I'm familiar. Yeah, it's, a, it's very well done. He, he followed a... Did you like the TV series? Uh, I was an advisor, and I played the executive officer in okay. the TV series. I was going to say, I was, I was definitely a book guy. Yeah, um, and then I haven't I haven't actually watched the TV series yet because so frequently the TV series or the movie ruins the books. So since I liked the book yeah. as much as I did, I, I stayed away from it. But now that I, there's a connection, I guess I need to watch it. It's actually very well done. It's the same people who did The Wire did yeah. uh, did Generation Kill. They okay. sent me the book and said, "What do you think?" And I didn't. I was working twenty hour days in that deployment, so I didn't even read it till the plane ride home. And uh, I said. Yeah, if you do this right, if you do this honestly, this yeah. could be really, really good. Yeah. And uh, they took it on, and no sooner as I'd been like, okay, I'm out of the military. <laughs> I got on a plane, <laughs> and I flew to South Africa. And played military. Yeah, yeah. I re recreated the invasion yeah. uh, that I'd actually been in. And, uh, yeah, we were in uh, Namibia, northern South Africa, and Mozambique. We shot the, the series, and I was basically... A, gone for another six months to do that uh, after having left the military so I wouldn't leave my right, family right. again. Now, that happened very organically for you. Was that the plan? I mean, not necessarily that immediate, but was that the plan? Get out of the military and go back into uh, screenwriting and, and directing and the movie business? Well, I'm kind of prismatic as an artist. Um, you know, I, I illustrate books. Um, I write poetry. I write essays. Um my book, Dust to Dust, and my memoir came out in 2012. Um, I've directed three films. Um, I've written 10 or 12. I'm currently writing a, a screenplay right now for a, a miniseries. And um, so I, it's almost whichever one draws me the most in the moments. Like, I'll go fallow on, on poetry or essays for years. People always think you have to write every day to be any good. I'm like, yeah. No, you have to write when you're when you're willing when, to yeah, yeah. when the inspiration's there organically. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. I don't write on assignment. I, I write when it's something comes to me that I think I need to figure yeah. out. Do you think that this artistic um, side of you and the fact that it's always been a big part of you uh, gave you any advantage with the self therapy that's necessary when you a get out of the military and b go through some of the experiences you went while you were in the military? Because I know that a big problem with most returning vets is not having an outlet to express themselves. Um, yeah, and that's a great, that helped, that's yeah. a great point. Yeah. Uh, I've taught a lot of veteran writing workshops for exactly that reason to people who are not writers, but uh, as a way for them to... To find a channel. Yeah, yeah. Find, find a way to, to, to tell these things that they can't explain to their friends and family even. Even if they're not you know, interested in doing any kind of public publishing of any kind, uh, just a way to finally put it out in a way uh, that, that others can understand it if they were to, yeah. to read it. And uh, that's, I mean, that's been nice uh, to do. 
here and there because I get to I meet veterans of all different stripes. Yeah, yeah. And you know we've always we've always kind of focused on the the combat veteran as if they're the only veteran when ninety five percent of the military is not combat veterans they're all combat yeah. support yeah. and you know they've done a number of things I think those stories um, as they begin to compile create a much better picture we've we've we have a lot had a lot of uh, of trigger stories yeah that's kind of why I pointed out too when we were talking about your transition out where I made the comment that sometimes it's not necessarily trauma. Uh, that creates that that difficulty of transitioning from military to civilian. It's all of it. It's the sense of purpose. It's the sense of camaraderie. Yep. It's the sense of family. Um, it's all of those things. Um, so yeah, when you bring up, not everybody's been through combat, but that doesn't uh, doesn't mean we downplay the mental struggle that takes place when you transition from what is a completely different life on almost every level um, back into the civilian world. I remember when I got out, I went from um, Staff Sergeant Fisher, who people know that if they need a solution to something, they can ask me because I've probably got it or I can work it out. And I, there's a certain level of respect for what I'm capable of to suddenly sitting at a bar with a beer in my hand where no one knew me, no one cared who I was. I did not have a good civilian resume to go wow some corporate company to get a job. Like I was a nobody starting at the very bottom. Yep. And I was like, just three days ago, as you know, most people don't do 20 years in the military. They do four. So at eight years, I was a senior-ish guy. I was, I was somebody that's been through three or four tours over in Iraq, somebody that's, you know, who's, who's got experience. And then all of a sudden, I was this guy all the way down at the bottom. Right. Uh, and we talked about that earlier, the, the, yeah. the, the, self, the sense of, of self-importance, yeah. you know, which is actually valid. Yeah. You are important to the machine. You, you yeah. are someone who actually makes things happen. Yeah. And suddenly to have no responsibilities at all, to have absolutely no one come to you as if uh, you are still participating yeah. in a, in a, as a contributor to anything. Yeah. So it's awesome you're doing these, or these writing workshops and things. How do you, where are you finding the veterans? Is this, uh, is this people that are kind of inclined towards art and so they find this? Or are you finding people that are uh, coming through a counseling service? What's the... Some of that comes through, um, you know, military programs, you know, NGOs have sprung up. Every yeah. university has come up because they, they want VA money. So many, uh, you know, veterans are finally going to college. And while they're there, uh, they have started veteran programs, either veteran writing programs or veteran studies, uh, peace and conflict studies. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these uh, people kind of gravitate towards that if they're not going for something which is craft specific, if they're not there to be a welder or, uh, you know, an IT specialist. They can be drawn sideways into some of these different, you know, opportunities. And they, of course, reach out to people who know how to do these things. Yeah. No, and, and I think that's an incredible outlet, too, because I think you hit the nail on the head with one of the difficulties is, is having so many experiences that are just kind of yours. No one else in the world really understands what it's like inside your head because you've had these experiences that you just can't verbalize in a conversation with somebody. Um, so I would imagine that's extremely cathartic for people being able to, like you said, even if it's not on a public forum, just to put it into words, just to put it into writing and kind of learn how to do that. It's probably extremely therapeutic. So that's awesome. Yeah. And a lot of people bring their own baggage, obviously, you know, we recruit from everywhere mm -hmm. and, um, most people are, have already come with 
most, most of their trauma. Yeah. Uh, the military finds a way to trigger it. Uh, but, yeah. uh, you know, so many people have from so many different backgrounds are also seeing these the same world that we're all in. And we, all, we would talk about the uniform, the uniformity, the military is all supposed to be composed of people who eventually become the Borg, you know, or yeah, all yeah. one. But, you know, when I'm in Iraq, I'm looking at trash on the side of the road, not only because it's probably hiding an IED, <laughs> but I'm interested in what people are throwing away. Yeah. I'm interested in when I see a, a, a they, over in Iraq, for some reason, you know, they had soccer players on their, on their, plat, uh, on their paper cups, and you'd see these portraits. And I, of course, as an artist... I'm drawn to imagery of uh, yeah. imagery. And so I'd see these piles of faces crumpled in a corner. I think that's amazing. But I'm looking at it for that reason. And someone who's a soccer fan will look at it for a totally different reason. And every other person on that patrol didn't look at it at all. They're like, uh, not an ID, not an yeah. ID, <laughs> trash. Right. That's trash. Right. Uh, whereas I found these small details fascinating. And I have no idea what anyone else in that patrol was also looking at that I was completely mm -hmm. missing because of where they came from. Yeah, do you think that that's um, something that's kind of neglected too, is I think most of Western culture outside of the military, you know, so the civilian world, um, kind of views it as when military guys go on deployment and they go to war, it's literally just, they're robots and they hate everything in front of them and they're there to kill and destroy and achieve an objective. Do you think it's kind of lost a little bit how much kind of soak in the culture around us it's just like i mean any other time you would travel to a place you've never been before and see things you've never seen before you're, you're kind of soaking in the nuances and you're intrigued by the way they do this or sitting there trying to figure out why do they do this is that the better way to you know it's just taking in a whole different culture full of, i think that's probably a nuance that's lost um in a lot of different portrayals and an understanding of, of what goes on with military people. Yeah, and I hope that that's more true than it feels like it is um, because there's such a blindness to nuance in America now that uh, we go to other cultures and we still go to the McDonald's there. Oh, my gosh. You know? Don't get me started on McDonald's here in Ukraine. It's, but yes, yeah. it's insane. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, uh, so many times I've gone with people because, you know, due to education and exposure and background, uh, they didn't have that intellectual curiosity. Yeah. It had never been encouraged. It had never been, you know, there's nothing of it, you know, in their family. And so they they don't even know how to see a lot of that, which uh, which I always found, you know, kind of sad. What a, what a tremendous opportunity oh, yeah. to see the world anew over yeah. and over again. And uh, so many people, I think so many reporters are, are flawed in this way as they seek the familiar. Yeah, see it through the lens of what you know. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's the that's the stuff you key on instead yeah. of the things you don't know, which I, right. I I find fascinating on both levels. I'm yeah. like, oh, when I, even in in Ukraine, I'm here. Most of these stores are selling, you know, Tommy Hilfinger, and it's it's Americanized. I know. Well, see, I'm the exact opposite, so maybe I'm missing part of the culture here because if I see anything that smells American, I avoid it. I want to experience something that I'm not going to be able to experience in the States. So, yeah, I avoid uh, the American food. I avoid the American yeah. uh, retail. Um, although it's, it's funny you bring that up because we... Pervasive, though. I mean, Oh, I, yeah. I, well, I, we joke it's per, 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 excuse me, pervasive, but like 20 years behind. Yeah. Like Adidas is huge here right now. It's all about Adidas. I'm like, uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s it was. And, and so certain parts of the retail culture... Um, 
it's kind of funny. We, right. we all just make a little joke about it. Our, our, like what was super cool 20 years ago in the United States is super cool now here. Well, they used uh, to have that with the Soviet Union. Like the Beatles yeah. were huge in the 80s. Okay, you know, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. so it's, oh, it's always go. like, you know, it's, yeah. a, it's about access, but Ukraine's opening it up. You know, I was, oh, here, yeah. I was here of all things with a partnership, a peace program in 2000, uh, which was right down in Chibanka, north mm -hmm. of Odessa, on the Black Sea. And we were just here for a couple weeks. We had our LAVs uh, shipped all the way from Quantico, Virginia, through, you know, across the Atlantic, through Europe, on train rails to Ukraine, so we could do this one little exercise with the wow. Ukrainian... Ukrainian naval infantry, yeah. who were based, of course, in Crimea at the time. Right. And this is before, before Russia took it. But uh, you know, the, the Ukrainians had only been you know a, a free nation since '91, and so it was interesting to see them as a post-Soviet country with complete, completely Soviet uh, military indoctrination know, and governing style. Yeah, exactly. The command. Yeah. Uh, they were amazed to see me talking to my subordinates yeah. like you're the you're the you're the officer what why are you talking to the the bottom the peasants exactly yeah. but that's that's so that was soviet right. ideology and it, and you can see how it's gone against the russians who haven't really yeah. adapted to that but the ukrainians have been training with nato for years yeah. now and so they actually have begun to you know to have a an nco class which right. can which is great because they can now uh, they have subordinate command capability right. below officer level, and the Russians yeah. don't. As soon as the officer's gone, the unit's destroyed. Yeah. So it was interesting at that time to see uh, Ukraine becoming itself. It was finally it still had Soviet gear. It still had you know uh, all the officers had been taught in Soviet mm -hmm. military institutions. All the uh, enlisted were ba basically conscripts with barely any gear yeah. and and we came as as American Marines with you know they were still manually turning their turrets and we had our you know oh, yeah. we had uh, hydraulics and so it was uh, it was an interesting you know, at the time it was to show that uh, it, we were a good ally to have and we embraced them and I had I'd had a great impression of the Ukrainians uh, hard fierce serious workers mm -hmm. and it was like that again when uh, you know, you've already talked to Adrian, but uh, Adrian Bonenberger, Mac Gallagher, and I, six days after the war began here, flew to begin the uh, the City Defense Force Training Academy. Yeah, so let's let's tie those two time periods together. When did you get out of the uh, Marine Corps? I left in uh, the two thousand beginning of two thousand seven. Beginning of two thousand seven, and uh, went and worked on Generation Kill. Yeah, and then just. Pursuing your art, whether yeah. that was poetry or writing or theater, for 13, 14, 15 years. And then I would imagine you were probably one of the people who paid enough attention that you kind of knew February 24th was coming before February 24th. Um, well, I, was, I was also, I cheated. I'm, I'm lucky. Um, my wife, Tracy, is a uh, Russian historian who is a professor at the nearby university in Michigan where we live. It's why we live in Michigan. And so she's tracking all the signs even more from the yeah. Russian side. I'm tracking them because yeah. of uh, Ukraine and between the two of us. I, I won't ask you to speak for her, but I'm curious what pushed her into that path. Does she have ties ancestry-wise or just curiosity, passion? 
She was, a, she yeah. was a Ohio girl, an all-American cross-country runner at Vassar, who chose between Chinese and Russian just by intrigue. Yeah. And she picked Russian, and then she ended up going there uh, junior year abroad before the wall came down, um, or just after. I can't remember now. I think it was just after. And, um, you know, she studied there for a semester, and then um, she's had a number of jobs that have taken her back to Russia, not, not recently because of right. you know, hostilities, but um, she's probably been there 15, 20 times. So. Yeah. I mean, it's a fascinating culture and history. There's no doubt about it. I've said frequently I screwed up because I've always paid a lot of attention to Russian culture, to Putin's story, to that kind of history, mm -hmm. um, and was very ignorant to anything Ukraine up until this, which now is shame on me, but because I know there's so much rich history and culture here. Um, it's hard to imagine with the Russians, though, considering they have such an, an intellectual, uh, you know, they, they honor intellectuals if they're, yeah. not, if they're not purging and killing them. Right. All, yeah. uh, that there's so many intelligent people who have allowed Russia to become what it is. It really yeah. is kind of surprising. It is. And it's a shame, too, because it's always been top of the list of the next place I need to go check out. And now I will certainly never be able to cross that border ever again so um so it is what it is i'll continue to read about it in the books so she is of course paying close attention um and seeing some indicators but you are here i believe within six days of the missiles hitting is that correct yeah how does that happen because obviously you might not have had the ticket yet but you kind of had the mindset before the missiles even hit for you to respond that quickly yeah no no um I didn't wait. Well, obviously, we didn't know exactly what was going to really happen. Um, and as soon as it did, uh, the catalyst for us was, was Adrian, who, of course, had been a journalist in Ukraine since 2014, the Maidan, and had met another journalist and fell in love and got right. married. And her parents uh, were still here in Kiev. And they were up in an apartment, and Kiev was under, you know, it was about to be under siege. Yeah. And so their mission was to go get their parents out and get them back to America to safety, if not uh, the parents being reluctant to be rescued. Right. Because they're older, 70s, you know. Yeah. Well, they're Ukrainian. Yeah. Ukrainians don't need to be rescued. We've got this. Yeah. Yeah, and interesting, I'm sure you talked about yeah. this, but, uh, you know, her mother's Russian and her father's yeah. Ukrainian, and, uh, you know, she was dealing with the shame of this happening uh, outside. So what was uh, your connection with Adrian? Well, Adrian, another, another he was, writer. He was Army. Yeah, yeah, but uh, we met because of his, um, you know, Afghan Post uh, book. He's a, a writer, a veteran right. writer, and so that that community was very small for a while. And he was early in that group, like I was, along with Matt Gallagher, who was also early in that group. Right. Kaboom! Um, so two, you know, three memoirists uh, that came out of the same. Well, you know, Adrian was uh, Afghanistan, but um, but Matt and I were Iraq. Uh, had all just kind of met each other through various, you know, conferences and things like that. So we, we did, we knew each other. And Adrian had has done, as well as Matt, has done veteran writing workshops. Mm -hmm. So you know, it was a similar mindset for bringing art to the front. So he just sends out a group text says, "Hey guys, I'm going to Kiev to get my wife's parents out. You want to come along and help?" Or how well, does that go down? It yeah, it was it was. Very close to exactly that. He yeah. sent me a, a message that said, um, going to Ukraine, uh, want to come? <laughs> and uh, I had one of those hard moments where I had to turn to my wife and say, 
So I have this idea. That little animal inside we were talking about earlier that really likes to seek a sense of purpose, he's kind of trying to get out of the cage right now. Yeah, yeah. and I've been latent for a long time. Yeah. So um, when he said, you know, if it was just going to be going getting, getting her parents, uh, I don't think that I would be necessary. Uh, but he said, while we're there, we're going to set up some kind of a civilian course to teach people how to um, how to fight, how to defend their cities, because... Most of them can't escape, and most of them don't want to. And we have no idea where the Russians are going to stop. Yeah. Uh, they're coming for everything. So we're going to stop in Lviv first and work out a way to get her parents to Lviv and then extract them. But we'll be there for two to three weeks. We don't know. Uh, what do you say we set up an entire progressional battle training uh, for civilians who have never picked up a rifle? And yeah. I said, well, that's just my game. Yeah, and in more than one way, that is why I'm sitting in this seat in Ukraine as well. Because uh, it turns out that is the nonprofit program that I initially came over here to be a part of and work with, uh, how I met you guys. And then I've told the story, too, to you off record, uh, that right after, I don't know, maybe 10 days, two weeks after, I had been obsessing over the idea and was there any capacity in which I could help, but I don't want to just mm -hmm. go there and not bring value because I did have a business at home. I had a million reasons that it was not wise for me uh, from a selfish standpoint to come over here, but just kind of needed that little nudge. And then I was watching Anderson Cooper one night and I see these three guys that are training people to stay alive. And I was like, I could, I could do that. That would be something I could do. And then I just kind of Forgot about that moment until I had been here two or three months and saw that clip again on somebody's website and was like, wait a minute, that that was Adrian and Ben and Matt, the guys whose nonprofit I'm working with now over here in Ukraine. Didn't even put it together at first. But yeah, yeah. so in and two different ways, that was very influential in, uh, in me ending up here was you guys doing that program. So We always wonder how we all meet. Yeah, you know, right. this, this is how it happens. Yeah. And, you've and you've since taken that, uh, that idea and diversified it uh, into rescue and supply and training as well so uh we weren't we weren't doing supply we weren't doing rescues or, or uh, extractions or anything at that time we were just focusing on training and now uh it seems that the civilian training aspect of that uh for city defense has kind of stopped because of their sense of um a static nature to the war in comparison yeah. to where we were but the ukrainian military desperately needs it yeah, Especially and people are going to be drafted soon, perhaps, and people yeah. who have had no military experience going into the territorial defense or or, uh, or any of the other forces, um, their their training here is very abbreviated, and yeah. so as a precursor, it's absolutely vital, I think, to give them what, uh, what we saw. Actually, we, we visited uh, the facility you were still running out in the forest near yeah. near Lviv somewhere, yeah, yeah. and uh, that's what they're learning. Yeah, these are guys coming in to to, uh, to pick up some extra skill before yeah. they and, actually go forth. And you lived in North Carolina, so you've probably heard the phrase: "If you don't like the weather, wait five minutes," because that's said often in North Carolina. So here we say: "If you don't like the plan, wait five minutes," because it's an evolving war; it's unprecedented. Yeah. Uh, the volume of independent volunteers not associated with a pre-existing organization that showed up here, like yourselves, uh, unprecedented. Um, Everything about this war is unprecedented. It seems, and, to have uh, it seems to have galvanized a certain type of person yeah, as well. It has. It's, it's been a it's been a flame that's attracting moths of the same kind, if you will. And 
So yeah, it is evolving. The civilian need is is more so medical training now because right. as we know, uh, the Russian strategy is to try and take the legs out from underneath the civilian establishments through infrastructure destruction and straight on targeting civilian residential buildings and and playgrounds. Um, and so yeah, the the training is more so uh, survival medical T triple C with the civilians, and then like you alluded to, just making sure that the people that are going to the front. Um, have the wherewithal and the training and the understanding to work as a team and, and come home to their wife and their kid at the end of the day. Yeah. Well, not at the end of the day, but at the end of this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I hadn't realized they, I mean, currently you, you can't get a, a real number about anything in this war that's vetted anymore, but yeah. we, we anticipate between 800 to 800,000 to a million Ukrainians are currently in uniform in one form or another. That doesn't mean yeah. they're, they're on the front fighting, but there's, you know, the levels of support. Right. Are, well, there's, they've got, you know, the territorial defense, and then they also have their National Guard, which is more of a security um, uh, detail. And then the police are actually considered part of the military here as well. And like you said, there's just kind of different levels to defense. Right. Um, and yeah, and then... Past that, you've got every single Ukrainian civilian who's ready if that has to be what has to happen. So, um, yeah, it's it's a nation that is trying to figure it out the same way we are. You know, when you guys came over, it was beginning of March. When I came over, it was beginning of May, and I had the same mentality. Is I thought this fight, like direct contact, is going to reach every civilian at some point in time. Um, and so that's where we concentrated our efforts. And then it evolved to where you realized, okay, Ukraine's actually really good at this war thing. Uh, and they're keeping the fight at the fight. Um, and of course, we don't know the future, but it looks like they've got a pretty good handle on stability as far as not letting that line progress any further. Right. Um, and but so so, so the goals change, the, the need changes, not goals, the need changes. Um, and you just have to adapt with it. And, and that's no different for the Ukrainian people. I know that when we came over, they genuinely, everybody in, in the West legitimately believed they were going to be holding a rifle facing Russians soon. Everybody, from the lawyer to the barista to the bus driver to everybody. Yeah, um, and that was, our, uh, that was yeah. our first class of 60, was just construction workers, lawyers, IT yeah. workers. Uh, usually, you know, at my youngest, we had, we had one kid who was just 16. His parents said, go learn these things. Yeah. Um, because you're the one of the house who's going to be yeah. holding holding it out so we can evacuate. You know, it's, it's amazing to see that when you go from that to people who are all up in their 60s who are just, you know, their, their families already been evacuated. And they're like, as you know, 60, 18 to 60, you couldn't leave the country. Right. So they said, okay, well, if, uh, if I'm here, I'm a soldier. Yeah. Um, I have to be prepared to do that because I have no idea. Five of them out of 60 had ever held a weapon. Yeah. And now you've come over in a uh, journalistic capacity, but how was the temperature change from that first time you crossed in here one week after the, the missiles start going uh, to yeah. this time coming over as far as just kind of reading the culture and society and where they're at? Because um, you've been all over on this trip, and I look forward to talking some more about that. But just overall, the Ukrainian atmosphere. Well, you know, at first it was incredibly tense because... They hadn't yet um, fully stopped the column on its route to Kiev. And as you remember seeing the photographs of that column, it was unbelievable. Oh, yeah. A complete vulgar 
uh, display of power, which, you know, I, I don't think I ever thought it was going to be utilized. They just thought that's all you need. Oh, yeah. As a parade of, scare them. Yeah, a parade of terror, and everyone's going to say, well, we can't fight that. And then they got punched in the face, yeah. and uh, I think they were more shocked than anyone. And so when we drove over, there were miles of women and children with one bag waiting to cross the border on foot. And the poles were incredible. They had, you know, full soup kitchen set up, blankets, everything else, once you got across the border. But, you know, the number of people who were trying to escape at that time was was stunning. And we went from Ikea and Harley-Davidson stores in brightly lit Poland into completely blacked out Ukraine. That's where we kind of felt that change, that sudden yeah. sense that everyone in the country was involved in something serious. Yeah. And, uh, you wouldn't, it was all blacked out for all the way to Lviv. We didn't see lights, uh, only a few candles burning in the, you know, traditionally in the, uh, in the cemeteries. And uh, Lviv, which is a place which hasn't been touched by much of any discomfort for yeah. many decades, uh, was grim. No one smiled. No one enjoyed themselves. It, it was a dark kind of uh, place. And we still didn't realize, you know, how how deep the Russians had come in terms of an intelligence and recon. We just assumed they were all over the place. Right. And so uh, we also had to be very cautious just entering our apartments and leaving it by different directions, taking yeah. different cars, yeah. um, splitting up. And so, you know, even though I didn't feel that I was directly, you know, in, in the line of assassination, it was possible. Yeah. Um, we were had to, we had to hide the location of our of our uh, training base uh, because just before we left, they hit Yabarif with, I don't know, nine missiles or whatever yeah. and caused incredible damage. We were doing that. We were doing that kind of thing. Yeah. So, you know, we couldn't have any photographs where the, the location could kind of be understood by anybody else. Um, so that was, you know, a very different time and we didn't go any further than Lviv. We stayed there, we trained, um, and then we left. And the Ukrainians felt pretty much the same way in Lviv. They like were, they were, they they're were in answers. it. Yeah. They're in it. The like, trainees, the trainees. Like, we, like we, no we, one's shooting at me yet, but I'm in it. This war is, is going to reach me. You know? Yeah. And, uh, and because, by, I mean, we, our first night there, we heard air raids and I've never heard an air raid in my life. And, you know, that, that changes everything. You've got a blacked out city with nothing but sirens going on at three in the morning. You think, yeah. huh, yeah. that's an interesting way to live. You know, what if you had a family here? What if, yeah. what if you don't know what's going to come out of the sky and where? Yeah. And so uh, that, was, that was, you know, uh, it was a tense time. And, and then those trainees, I want to hear your impression of these, as you stated, yeah. these, are, these are bus drivers, construction workers. Pretty mind blowing how how hungry they are to uh, to learn, isn't it? And once again, uh, that pressure was back on to not to not, not let them down, to yeah. not let them down, yeah. to give them the absolute best training to to make sense to, you know, to people who have have never designed their lives like so many of us as volunteers. You and I volunteered to join the military. These people they weren't planning on it. No, <laughs> nope. At, at, at fifty five, you yeah. think. I'm probably done with my uh, yeah. my youthful uh, service, and uh, and they came in and that first day, there's 50 of them just staring at us, um, and we had to not be bad, yeah. you know. So uh, yeah. it was right into it, and of course I'd been out since 2007, so um, I had to reignite all these different instincts that yeah. had gone fallow, and you know, and once again, be a damn good infantry 
officer trainer yeah. and uh, some of the other two trainers and um, and the seriousness I mean I've trained a lot of Marines and as you know uh, as, as a former staff sergeant as an NCO as a as a private at one point um, training can be boring yeah. repetition can be yeah. boring and you know I've trained I've trained Marines who pretty were pretty sure they already knew what I was giving them and uh, there's a very different feeling to that when everybody is absolutely like afraid and, and desperate for They're it. counting on every word you say saving their life. Exactly. Yeah. It was yeah. a totally different experience, even though we were, we were trying to create the same, you know, the same right. end, end result, a capable individual who's confident and reliable right. and has, has enough uh, skills and has begun to at least learn to think strategic or tactically uh, about how to just go down a street, what to look at, how to coordinate with other people yeah. uh, in your group. And uh, so the, the way they looked at us was, uh, you know, kind of immediately brought back all of that seriousness in myself. Yeah. I went from being, man, back to being an artist. Yep. And yep. suddenly I was like, Marine. Yeah, I'm Officer uh, Officer Bush again. Um, we're back into it, yeah. and uh, and I've never I've never seen a group um, like unfailingly and seriously focused uh, on being good at it. Whatever we gave them, you know, they, they wanted to be good, yeah. and um, and that's that's very rewarding. Do you remember the first time you tangibly saw the transition? And I know you saw it because I see it in every group we work with. When you tangibly saw the transition between I'm terrified, I don't know what I'm doing, I don't stand a chance I'm going to die as a martyr, to <laughs> I feel like I'm learning something. I feel like I kind of know what I'm doing. You know what? Let's let's get these guys out of my country. Like that yeah. transition there, like that feeling we talk about missing that sense of purpose that we had in the military, those sorts of things. Like I will never forget. And I continue to experience it over and over again, watching day one deer in headlights, terrified. I just said goodbye to my wife and I'm never going to see her again too. We're going to stick this out as a team. We got this. We, we've learned some stuff. I'm confident. I know what I'm doing. I'm going to go help win this war and then come back and celebrate with my wife. And just seeing that confidence change that, that mental changes. Yeah, it's and not, addicting, and yeah. and not to in, inflate, uh, you know, praise at all. Uh, we had a final exercise where we brought it all together. You know, my, our, my first thinking was, let's teach them the offense, not so they're be they're going to be great in the attack, but so they understand what the attacks bring yep. against them. Yeah. Then teach them defense. Yeah. And uh, our final exercise, we brought all this stuff together, and they were good. Yeah, and. You could see, you could see the, I could, you could feel it uh, uh, in a in a way that I've never felt um, such gratitude. You know, yeah. uh, not that that was the, the the purpose in the end, but right. it just kind of it just kind of came so freely that it was kind of surprising and so authentic. It was completely authentic, yeah. and 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 uh, and that was that was really what you know. The flight home was kind of like, not only are they going to win. But um, whatever anyone thought I was doing, it was worthwhile entirely. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't yeah. question any of you know. We we spent our own money to come here. We spent yeah. our own time. It was a bad time to leave where I was. Uh, you know, 
uh, with winter still heavy. Just pull that microphone a little closer to you. With winter still heavy in Michigan, it was a bad time for me to be leaving my family. Um, and so uh, I was, I was, when I, when I, when I felt that overwhelming, authentic gratitude, yeah, it's it just kind of, it, it did. It, it, it was really, it's, it's healing of stuff you didn't, you didn't even realize you needed healing from on some levels. I mean, it's, it's, there's so little gratitude yeah. in the world now. Yeah. We've become so, yeah. uh, so self-interested, yeah. uh, that it, it kind of was a, a little, a little window, a little moment of, of humanity coming back to me like, Oh, yeah. you know, people can be wonderful. Yeah. Did, uh, did you ever find your answer to the question? Because anyone that has volunteered over here has been asked the question countless times. Why are you doing this? Why would you, why would you leave your country? You don't even know us. Like, what are you doing? We get asked that so frequently. Um, and it's one of those, well, that's a very deep question. And I'm not sure how much time you have for my answer is sort of a situation. Cause it kind of embodies everything we've been talking about so far as to, uh, like you said, there's that balance between it's a benevolent thing, but it's also a self-serving thing. Um, did you ever find your perfect answer to that question? Well, I, I don't know that I have a perfect answer for it, but I can say, and there's, there's disasters all the time. You know, why am I not running constantly right. to every country that's right. dealing with, you know, a disastrous political situation or a humanitarian crisis? And I've always thought, well, there's humanitarian specialists they're really good at this. They're already ready to do these things. We we've we've developed that that ecosystem of support right. over over generations at this point of helping other countries with this problem and this problem. A political answer, I can't help you with that. Uh, a humanitarian, a, you know, answer where you need water, there are plenty of people who can who can deal with that. Yeah, uh, that's not my wheelhouse. Um, but. What we've felt, and I, I know I'm sure you have too, anyone who pays actual attention, uh, the rise of autocracy is, is the end of us. It's the end of us all over yeah. again. These are all the conditions that created World War II. Yeah. You know, anyone who's not thinking that is on the wrong side of whatever this is. And especially if they still don't see it in the past two weeks with Iran starting to show support, um, China basically waiting to see if they want to hitch their wagon sure. to see if it's a winning or a losing effort. Like, it's pretty clear that there's an alliance of ideologies Sure. In the works. And in the U.S. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, it's it's problematic everywhere. It is, you know, we've got uh, Central America as well. Asia is, is dealing with hugely powerful uh, controlling organizations as government. And and then there's, you know, independent groups which are, you know, kind of airing in the same way. We've got religions right. doing the same thing. Right. So I think uh, it was this one moment where autocracy uh, entered into direct action. And like the only place we really could counter it ended up being Ukraine. And um, knowing Ukrainians as I did, which is not nearly as well as I know them now, yeah. but as well as I did, that their urges were pure in this, in this take. And I think that's what drew me in. Like this, is, this requires a military solution. Yeah. That's something I can actually do. Yeah. And not everyone can do that. And frankly, we don't have a lot of organizations that can. Yeah. And it's one of the, well, I won't even say one of the rare times, it's probably the only time um, that because of the nuclear threat that there is a legitimate democratic country that aligns with our values politically. Obviously, values politically is a very obtuse term, but sure. but aligns with, with, with what we believe in as a democracy in the West, and yet 
we will not formally help them. Right. So and I think it's I mean. a first. And then that kind of the onus is now on, well, I have that skill set and I don't work for the United States government. Um, I think it's, as you just said, it's the first time there's been that void in response. No, there's, as you said, there's organizations for bringing supplies. There's organizations for bringing water, organizations for rehoming refugees. Um, usually, in the event that a country aligns with our values, if they need a military response, we provide it as a country and as a government, not as individuals. Right. Which is why I used the term unprecedented individual volunteer response, because this hasn't really happened before. Um, and And also, I mean, you know, the UN responded to a number of things years ago, like uh, Bosnia. Yeah, that was yeah. a UN response. There's been UN responses militarily to a number of situations, and the UN was dead silent on this. It didn't move. Yeah. NATO had its hands tied politically because this was going to be something exterior to NATO. And, um, and it looked, even six days in, like no one was going to come. Yeah. And, uh, and so we did. Yeah. Uh, independently, which, you know, and along with so many, a surprising number of people. Yes, yeah, very surprising. There are no words that I can find to adequately describe what I encountered when I came to Ukraine. These people are incredible. This cause is the most worthy effort that I've had the privilege of being involved with myself. If it's something that you feel you want to become involved with, either by volunteering or donating, I would ask that you look into Dark Horse Allies. Dark Horse is the organization that I'm involved with over here. It's a nonprofit organization. Members have been operating in Ukraine since the early days of the Russian invasion, comprised of both civilians and military veterans like myself from around the world. Dark Horse is a collective of volunteers on an independent mission to try and preserve innocent human lives. The name Dark Horse is a nod to the unbreakable spirit of the Ukrainian people who entered this battle as underdogs, but have inspired the entire free world through their determination. And as we always tell these guys, by surviving with their hearts. If you would like to become involved, please head over to darkhorseallies.org or you can find us on Facebook or Instagram at facebook.com slash darkhorseallies or obviously instagram.com slash darkhorseallies. By signing up right now to become an ally for as little as $7 a month, you could become a part of this effort. We would love to have you join us. If you're interested in volunteering, please reach out through the website. We do have opportunities for anybody that wants to become involved on any level. And now we return to the podcast. And now you were an officer in the infantry of the Marine Corps. I would say one of the baddest uh, fighting forces on earth. But since you're Marine, I know you're going to say the baddest fighting force on earth. Goes without saying. Uh, fought. You know, served in Iraq uh, in some very hot spots, had some experience with combat. Why didn't you want to pick up a gun and go fight the Russians? I did. So why didn't you? I have two daughters and a wife, and uh, I, gave, I, gave that, I gave that instinct in that world 16 years to kill me. Yeah. And um, having survived, I've made other promises. Yeah. And one of them was that I would not come into direct action. And even now, you know, we, we stopped in Mikolaev. Yeah. I didn't, it, not that it didn't. You don't have me. to talk too much about it if your wife and kids are going to be watching this later. So. <laughs> not that it didn't. No, she knows. Yeah. She, I mean, she, <laughs> she loves me. She knows me. Uh, she's been more than fair than, I mean, I can't even, I can't even begin to talk about the support that is required for me to do something like this yeah. and do it again. I'm here now. Um, not under those circumstances, but 
uh, to kind of see where it has gone. And uh, leaves a different place, keeps a different place. Um, and Mikolaev's trying to, to, to live its life with a war 30 miles from it. It's astounding, isn't it? It really uh, is. Mikolaev is, I think, one of the most um, inspirational on a civilian level uh, places that I've been here. I mean, they're all tough. They're all taking this like a champ. But uh, Mikolaev is just that place. I talked to you the other day about it. The first time we went in, um, I kind of felt like a fool because we're taking missiles right after we went in. I mean, we were there an hour. We got in late. It was like 11 o'clock at night. And an hour after we get in to me live, the first missiles are hitting apartment buildings within a block of us. Um, and what, we were take, you, what were you doing at that time? So uh, re repaint this. Yep. So we went in to set up training uh, for some of the troops that are showing up with no training whatsoever. Like they've made it all the way to the front and have not received any training, trying to set up some, some training programs there. And we had a combat medic with us as well, doing some civilian training on uh, <laughs> the obviously needed uh, T triple C in a, in a place that's taking S 300 missiles every single day in the city center at, aimed at residential areas. Um, so we show up missiles right off the bat and then everybody's out of water. We're kind of scattered OPSEC. We had different apartments in different places in the city rather than putting us all together in the same place. And, uh, so we're messaging everybody good, everybody good, but everybody's the water's out. Um, so again, we got in after the imposed curfew. So I had no exposure yet to what the civilian status of Mikolaev was. So I get up in the morning ready to be a superhero. I've already sent messages to Lviv. We need two box trucks. We need to set this up. I need you to find a place to load it up with bottled water and get it down here. We're going to offer to evacuate people. We've got vehicles. We're, I'm ready to go. I didn't sleep that night. I was full of adrenaline. We're in it. The missiles are hitting. These people need us right now. We'll deal with the training situation right now. We need to help these civilians. And I get up in the morning and I walk out and I see exactly what I expected to see because... I should also point out, you were talking about blackouts. When we came into Mikolive, they don't mess around down there. You do not turn on a light, as you saw. Yeah, still After out. curfew, right. Um, so when we came in, I didn't really see hardly anything in the city. And so I get up in the morning and I walk out, and it was kind of what I expected just because I coincidentally happened to be on a street that was all abandoned and nobody was staying there. So I walk out, and there's just nobody on the street, but there's one little old man walking down the street with a bucket in his hand, and I'm like, all right. That guy knows where you go to get water, so I'm going to just kind of follow him. Not make it obvious I'm following him, but I'll follow him and see where it's at, and I'll be the guy with the intel. I can tell everybody, oh, I found the source of water. And I walk around the corner, and there's hundreds of people all in line at a very designated water spot that they all know they come and get water every single morning, and they're passing out food, and there's little kids playing with their RC cars in the streets. and every I was like, wait a minute. Okay, I kind of thought, like, you said we're 30 kilometers from the front. There's missiles hitting this city every night. I assumed this was going to be the place where it's just military-aged males or a handful of people that are stubborn and didn't want to leave. Um, but no, there's still businesses were open. I walk up, I see a Lviv croissant, which is kind of our universal right. crack house for us. We love that place, and most cities in, in uh, Ukraine have them. And I walk up, and I see people coming out. I'm like, I don't know. There's no water in this city. Like, there's the rubble from the missile that hit last night, six hours ago. There's no way this place is open. And I walk in, and I asked her, are you guys open? And she looked at me like I was an idiot. She's like, well, of course we're open. I was like, oh, 
okay and they're just in there with jugs of filtered water washing the dishes by hand prepping the food with this bottled water and uh and open for business i messaged all the guys i was like okay so maybe a little false alarm on the drama that i was you know anticipating this morning but meet up here for breakfast and breakfast yeah la vie croissant's open so i'll met there and then as you saw we come to find out most of the businesses are open if they haven't been destroyed um and then what i was going to say is initially uh, when we started talking about Mikolaev is spirit of the people. Uh, we talked about this before. Like I was blown away to a person, every person you ask a Mikolaev, why don't you want to leave? Like we can get you out of here. We're not asking for money. Like this is a, we'll help you um, to a person. It's if I leave my elder neighbor next door is not going to be able to take care of themselves. Or if I leave, you know, the family with the kids down the street, isn't going to have the support they need. It's we're a community We're we're a, we're a package deal. Um, we don't leave unless everybody's safe. And right now everyone's not safe. So we're staying here to help this community. And that's just very indicative of the, uh, of the Ukrainian culture. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, so you guys, when you came in this time, uh, you spent a little time in Lviv, you came up to Kiev, um, and Mikolaev, have you been anywhere else yet on this? Uh, Odessa. Trip? Odessa. Which is. What was your impression of Odessa? Largely on. Yeah. Untroubled by any of it, yeah. but also pretty vacant. It's, yeah. it's also getting cold, right. but I was interested because it's it's their jewel. Yeah, uh, it's also their vacation hub, and it's hugely populated by Russians. Yeah, so I wanted to see, I wanted to feel like yeah. how how everyone's looking at each other. Yeah, yeah. That, uh, you know, lines have been drawn. Yeah, and uh, even talking to people in Mikolaev, I was thinking of oh, this huge port city. There must be an awful lot of Russian investment. Mm-hmm. There's been an awful lot of Russian business being done here. Yeah. And they all said, no, not since 2014. Russian, Russian investment is, is no longer in, invited, yeah. which I was surprised. You know, they move a lot of grain uh, out of Mikolaev. Yeah, and it was interesting, too. Um, we definitely noticed a different temperature in Mikolaev, which is to be expected when you're having that kind of, um, that kind of attack on a regular basis. But... You don't you don't get the sense that I expected because as you said they're all Russian speaking which that's one of the huge misnomers in the West is they believe there's only few pockets of Russian speaking places and everybody persecutes them no it's the entire East and half of Central Ukraine all speaks Russian and is proud Ukrainian um, while speaking Russian but um, didn't get the sense I, I I had that same expectation as you were saying like I was like all right I. I the FSB guys and and even not just FSB but where's the Russian sympathizers because I know they're they're down here um I think that one of the big um well there's quite a few but one of the big underestimations on the Russian side is they were counting on and have since 2014 loyalty um loyalty from these these people that have just grown up under Soviet systems their whole life don't know any different and and would rather dance with the devil they know and listen to the propaganda and have been, you know, sympathetic towards Russian causes uh, since 2014 in the Luhansk, uh, Donetsk, and uh, Crimea, and and even some in, in the Mykolaiv and Kherson area. They rely on that, uh, and they were relying on it a lot for this invasion, and they're fucking themselves by lobbing missiles all day and night into these city centers, um, you know, in Mikolaev, they're using S-300 missiles, which, you know, most people 
might not be privy to that, you know, what that is, but those are missiles that are designed for surface to air and they were designed a long time ago. They're old technology. They're They're designed for surface to air. You cannot in any way, shape or form claim that you were aiming it at a target. If you're shooting it surface to surface, you're aiming it at an area. You can't aim them right at a specific target. So the fact that that's what they're using at Meek Alive is just proof that, they're not. They're not shooting at targets. They're just trying to torment a people. They're just trying to kill civilians. They're trying to break their break their will. It's also showing yeah. that they're out of other operas. Yeah. You know, yeah. they don't have the other missiles. They don't have the other, yeah. you know, precision guiding missiles or but, cruise missiles. But when but they're willing to do that, I do think. And I'm not saying that I've talked to a, a number of people and know this firsthand, but I think I can see the temperature changing even with some formerly pro-Russian sympathizers going. All right, you know, Ukraine's treating us pretty well and, and, and taking back villages and trying to put us back together and, and take care of us. And Russia, who's supposed to be the ones we're in favor of, uh, doesn't give a shit about us. They don't care about us at all. They're, they're, they obviously don't uh, care about their own troops. No. And they're throwing them into the fire with no, no. training. Do you spend any time uh, you spend any time on like TikTok, Snapchat, watching any of these Ukrainian soldiers that have all their little private stories or, or the things that they throw out there on social media? A few. Um, so I was uh, TikTok, Snapchat, not my thing. It's, I still don't go on Snapchat. Um, it's huge here. But I was going to say, I've had to kind of become familiar with TikTok. And that's one of the things you just see over and over again is, uh, is Russians who surrender. And, and get taken in by the Ukrainians. And by day two, they're like, can we fight with you guys? Like, this is way better than my life in Russia, my life in the Russian military. You guys care about each other. What is that? That's weird. You know, in the Russian military, nobody cares about anybody. I'm just a warm bag of bones and flesh. Like, you guys actually really look out for each other and care about each other. And, and well, there's uh, a, there, there are Chechen and Georgian battalions fighting here. Yeah. You know, they're just... Yeah. The Russians, you get to fight the Russians. Yeah. How can we help? <laughs> yeah. Oh man, well, the first time I ever came to Kiev, um, it was sort of the same thing. When I came into Lviv in the very beginning, I had the same expectation of like I'm in the war, and same as you. I came in at like two in the morning, so everything was dark. There was nobody out in the streets. Um, obviously, the next day I discovered Lviv was a little more vibrant than I was anticipating. Um, but same deal when I came to Kiev. So. I kept having this experience of thinking, okay, the next place I go is a little further east. This is where it's going to be. Nobody's out doing anything. And all the way to the line, 20 kilometers away, there's still businesses open. But first time I came to Kiev, you kind of have your guard up a little bit because you're going to a new place um, that was attacked very heavily in the beginning of the war. And I get in not quite as late. It's like 1030 at night. I'm staying at an Airbnb. And I walk out in the street and there's these four big jacked guys with their wife beaters on and clearly Armenian just walking down the street looking like they're going to kill anything in its path. I'm like, all right. So I kind of keep my head down and keep walking. I hear, Americanists? I was like, oh, shit. So I turn like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Comes over, give me a big hug. You here to kill the Russians too? Like, yeah. And I was like, uh, well, in a roundabout way, I guess I'm supporting that cause. But no, I'm not here to go fight the Russians. They made a lot of enemies. And yeah, they just literally said exactly what you said. They were like, we have a chance to go kill some Russians. We're going to go kill some Russians. Um, and I know that a lot of people will view that as, you know, well, that's just a bunch of, you know, 
animals and, and killers wanting to kill, but there's something, there's a, there's a reason that that's in the fiber of their being because they have had some serious atrocity, atrocities carried out against them by, by the Russian regime. So it's not just a surface like, oh, I want to go kill Russians. Like they've been, Russia has been systematically trying to infiltrate and take over pretty much everywhere that used to be USSR. And in the process has done some really terrible things and treated some people really terribly bad. That's why the Georgians are here. You yeah. know, Russia took a piece of Georgia, yeah. threatened to take all of it. And, yeah. uh, and then had the lines. gall that when they, when they tried to conscript a month ago, half of them were trying to flee to Georgia. I can't imagine how that went. Over 200,000. Yeah. yeah. Over 200,000 uh, yeah. Russian men have, have gone into Georgia at least yeah. at this point, which is, uh, you know, indicative of, and, and, and uh, You'd think it, okay, well, those are people who are anti-war, but a lot of them had been oh, pro-war a no, moment before. They were anti-conscription. Yeah, yeah. they are pro-war until, yeah. until it involved them, uh, which yeah. I think is, uh, you know, it, it, that's what annoys me most is that Russia could change at any moment. This is one man's uh, mania, and uh, he's created a, an ecosystem that protects him um, through fear and and a very small band of incredible loyalists because this doesn't make any sense for Russia. None of this makes yeah. any sense. It's going to be the end of Russia, and I think uh, I think people. Are That's a bold statement. It, it is, but yeah. it's not untrue. Yeah. And what's going to happen after this? They're going to have expended their entire military at this point. They have what twenty five percent of their military is not involved directly in Ukraine, which yeah. means anyone could just drive into Moscow. Oh yeah, that's a conversation that uh, that we've had. Not oh, we need to go to Moscow, no. but like no, but we've had the conversation of. I mean, that's just, well, it's not the only way in which their military strategy is lacking, but you're just like, that's, I mean, you're leaving yourself awfully vulnerable. The Chinese are, are, um, are noticing this. Yeah, and I think that it's, it's worth noting because I think, too, that that points to, I don't know, I don't know how accurate it was, although I don't think he'd be too far off if this was his mindset, but I think in his mind, uh, you know, you made the comment, this will be the end of Russia. I think he truly believed um, that if democracy thrived in the way that it is thriving in Ukraine, which that's a whole nother conversation about how amazed I am by the example of democracy and uh, uh, people um, pursuing what they want for their, for their nation here. But I think that he truly believed that if it continued to thrive, um, 2014, when when the people said enough's enough, and and uh, and really started the trajectory towards NATO and and EU, and even if not adjoining them, but those are our principles, and and that's the direction we're going. I think that in his mind, he believed if it continued to go that way, it was going to be the end of Russia as it was. It's going to be because end, it's going to be end of autocracy, right? Which is what I mean by that. So, yes, the yeah. sovereign, old, Soviet, uh, corrupt, me and the good old boys keep everybody afraid and needing us and paying us for every little step they take in life. And it not only backfired um, here, but the Swedes, the Finns, yeah. uh, have expressed interest in, in oh, NATO yeah. now in a way which yeah. never, they, they, they had never had been interested before. And it, it re, unfortunately, and I think, you know, Unless you're uh, unless you have a lot of shares in Raytheon, 
unfortunately, it has reinvigorated the military-industrial complex yeah. to rearm Europe yeah. in a way which is kind of bizarre because they're rearming against someone who is going to be essentially disarmed after this is over. They're throwing everything they have at this, and they're losing. Um, what is Russia really going to be as a force yeah. in in the world once yeah. this is done? That's another conversation I don't hear very often that I think is, I think it's something that definitely jumps out at me is the amount of weapons that are being thrown at it. And after we saw what happened in Afghanistan, do you think there's any chance the United States will be giving this kind of technology and these kind of weapons to someone they thought there was any chance they could lose and Russia acquire said weapons. You know, because we had that happen to us in Afghanistan. We've had that happen to us a number of different places. Um, I think that it's worth noting that these Western countries would not be putting this stuff in a place where they thought it might come into Russian hands. So clearly the powers that be and, and the people with the inside track agree with yours and I's settlement that Ukraine's coming out on top. Yeah. Um, and and yeah. the the reason everyone's staying back has been the same from the beginning, is the veiled threats of nuclear war, which yeah. the, the, I Russian, think there's, the Russians still have that. I think there's two levels to it now. I think that the veiled threat of nuclear war was obviously, it's not I think, that was obviously the reason for not getting involved in the beginning. Uh, but I think that the response of volunteers... And the, uh, how do I want to put it, and the result of this proxy war of just feeding in systems um, is, is the second level. Like, I wonder, you know, I don't know, but if there wasn't this big uh, response from NGOs and independent volunteers, and if there wasn't so much headway being gained from the things being brought in from the West and donated by these countries... Uh, if that nuclear threat would still be enough to keep countries from getting directly involved. I wonder how much of it is them sitting back going, it's kind of working the way it is right now. Like, we might have needed to go in, but I don't think we need to. The Ukrainian people are some of the most incredible improvisers. Um, they find a way to 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 win. But also... And uh, they're getting all these great munitions, and there's all these voluntary NGO guys there helping out, and it seems to be working as it is. Let's leave it alone. What, what has surprised me, though, is, I mean, yes, we have thrown a great deal of hardware and, uh, and assistance, um, you know, to the Ukrainian military, but I haven't seen the larger NGOs like USAID and various places yeah. like that, they've they've essentially been replaced by, you're talking about improvised uh, actions, but yeah. volunteer improvisers yeah. doing the things that normally they do, yeah. uh, moving in for supplying. I mean, the biggest thing right here right now that everyone we talk to, IFAX, individual yeah. first aid kits with, you know, de decompression needles and, uh, and tourniquets, uh, because they're using them. Yeah. Not, not because they want them, not because they're interesting to have, because they're desperate for them, because they're involved in, they're, they're throwing down at the very front, and they're having a lot of casualties. And uh, that's what saves lives, is those yeah. simple things. They didn't have those before this war. They just didn't. Yeah. And they're going through them, and they're, they're standing up units which are, are facing you know, actual fire, uh, and it's been groups. Uh, that have simply improvised the supply all the way from the U.S. and throughout Europe 
and delivery to these units throughout this country. I think that's that's a really interesting thing because that's oh, something yeah. you could you could see that you know, the American military could simply give those right ship them in, but they're actually being done by independent individuals, you know, independently funded by donors in the U.S. and, yeah. and throughout Europe uh, and the world. Um, that's something which kind of surprised me. Yeah, uh, that that's they don't they need helmets. We, we ha- how many fa- how many warehouses of helmets do you think we have sitting back in in army storage? Yeah, you know, uh, and so you know, I look at that, and I, that's the thing that kind of surprised me was that the the surge of of volunteers filled all the official voids. Yeah, and that's interesting, and that's part of why I say like I wonder how much of it was like all right. You know, those roundtable discussions in the Pentagon are taking place where they're like, okay, we can't go in nuclear threat, but let's make a plan. What is the line where we do go in or what is the bubble? And then after a certain period of time, like, all right, sit back, guys. Let's let's watch this for a little bit. Let's see what's happening over there because this is, this is a new thing and this seems to be working. And we might be able to, you know, just via proxy um, observe and and then just throw in a little assistance here and there where it's needed but let uh let the organism do its own thing because i say all the time this is the 1941 slash 2022 war because it's so bizarre that we're fighting a trench war but with drones and where social media influencers are raising so much money that they're providing helmets and ifacs and things that they need from a social media guy in Toronto mm-hmm. with a St. Javelin meme that right. he created. Which I see everywhere. That went viral, that is suddenly not just a, oh, everybody knows about it. It's making an impact on a war. It's providing supplies, and not only supplies. You and I talked about this the other day. I think the reason um, that we saw the shift in late spring where it was Russia advancing and Ukraine trying to hold them off to Russia pissing themselves and Ukraine kicking ass was, was mental. It was, we talked about your first time you went to Lviv, what the atmosphere was versus now it was that switch of I'm prepared to be a martyr for my country. And I also think that's probably what I'm going to have to do. I'm, I'm expecting to die for my country um, I believe we can win this war, but it's it's going to be ugly too. We've got this. We can do it. And there's all kinds of variables, and you can't figure out what was most instrumental. But things like a St. Javelin meme that get everybody on board with, even on that surface 2022 kind of way, that is an emotion. That is that is a char- uh, character, uh, confidence-building uh, uh, mental trigger. And then throw in all these volunteers from all over. You commented on being amazed. I came over here thinking there'd be like 10 of us in the whole country. And I come over and it's like Germans, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, Britain, United States from all over. Um, And these aren't just yahoos. There's some pretty high speed, impressive people here that I've met that you go, I know damn well you probably got a pretty good gig going in the States. I know damn well you could be making a lot of money doing what you're doing here if you did it for profit in some of these countries that will pay for your skill set. Just from all over came here and said, nah, we're going to help. We don't need anything in return. Oh, I mean, your your instructors are still volunteers entirely. And I mean, that's, 
it's, you think it's hard to sustain. You have to keep on balancing, bringing people in, giving people breaks. Yeah. Um, but the other thing that turned uh, a lot of a lot of the attention away, unfortunately, you know, energy is going to be used as the biggest weapon for negotiations in this entire thing because right. NATO Europe is going to be under incredible strain. The entire yeah. world is suffering an inflation, right. mostly due to this, not due to any kind of other policies we're right. going to blame it on. Um, but or or at the very least reactions to this yeah sure and projections yeah. and everything yeah. else and the market does its game uh, but uh, atrocities were one of the biggest things which i think suddenly just shocked uh shocked everybody that that a a modern you know basically european country like russia would in plain sight commit civilian atrocities yeah. Not not by accident. These are not collateral casualties, mm -hmm. but intentionally, uh, and then abducting entire populations, which we still don't know where they are, into Russia. Yeah. That, that's something where we just kind of couldn't even believe. It was too diabolical. Yeah. Uh, and I think that galvanized enough a whole other segment of people who are like, yeah. okay, well, war is war. Uh, you know, let everyone settle their differences yeah. by the knife if they have to. To uh, how is this? How is this even possible? Yeah. Under, I mean, in social media, everything's everything's open source now, yeah. and uh, I just I, I, I continue to be amazed that uh, that Russia, despite the exposure of these crimes, doesn't seem to be changing any of its habits. Yeah, I mean, I guess obviously at some point you're committed to it because <laughs> there's no undoing what you've already done. Right. But I, um, to that point. It's, I'm sure it's some sort of psychological study that needs to be done, but it, it does amaze me, and, and I'm guilty of it too, and so I'm not judging people, but how you can have a separation from something that causes you to react to it so differently than you normally would. And what I mean by that is one day in Ukraine, one, one day's worth of events in city centers, civilian city centers, taking place anywhere in main Europe, Germany, France, Italy, United States, Canada, would be considered the greatest terrorist attack in modern history. Having all these missiles fired at residential buildings and playgrounds, and, and it's happening every single day here. And people acknowledge that in the West. They're aware of it, and they're not okay with it. But, I mean... We had actors' divorces get talked about more in social media and and in the public eye than the fact that I mean this is this is some serious stuff. Like this isn't just war. This is and I've said this countless times. I wish honestly people would stop calling it a war. It's an invasion and a terrorist attack. This isn't two conflicting interests trying to settle something. This is a country illegally invading another country that did not want anything to do with a war and then committing terrorist attack after terrorist attack on civilians um, and civilian centers. And it's astounding. Like I said, I know there's, there's a certain detachment you have from something when you're not in it. Um, but I don't know. I just find it. I was actually, I'm not gonna lie. I was real pissed about this for a while. I was, this was my soapbox for a while. It was just, you know, I feel like if this was happening in France or Italy, even people in the United States who still have that geographical detachment would be making a much bigger deal out of this. Well, we also have um, 20 years of war fatigue in the U.S. Touche. And I think that's, yeah. I think that's not insignificant. And, yeah. you know, um, 
we were bored with Iraq. Uh, was it? A, we gave it a good six weeks, and then the journalists started leaving Baghdad because it was boring, and because it just wasn't getting the play that the media needed. And I think, unfortunately, with the you know with the commercialization of of news and information in that way, we've we've lost a lot of our sensibilities in the U.S. Um, don't pay attention in the way we used to. We don't have the ability to sustain our attention on anything. Uh, We can be horrified briefly. And then we really hope that whatever it was is over. Yeah. And I think, you know, we were talking about how it's, and it still surprises me as well that that they're so brazen about the war crimes they're committing. But I think that on some level he counted on that. He said, you know, the West is short attention span and only cares about what's going on in their backyard and, Sooner or later, people will just kind of, oh well, whatever. So, well, this is happening. It's a war. This is know, happening so. in Europe's backyard. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I hope that, you know, that I really think energy, energy is going to start changing support. And yeah. I think I think Ukraine knows that. I think they yeah. know that they have to um, move quickly because uh, the sufferings of people who are concerned with their sufferings yeah. is eventually going to. Minimize their interest in anyone else's. Yeah. yeah, I think that was a big, um, I mean, obviously there's a motivation just to get the Russians out of your country, but I think that was a big motivating force behind the massive counteroffensive that took place in September was realizing that if we want to continue to get support from the West, we need to give them something to be excited about. Yeah, and I'm going to Kharkiv yeah. next. Kharkiv? So, yeah. So I You will definitely see the signs of some unhappier times in Kharkiv. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and, I, and I, that's what I want to see. I want to. Yeah. I want to see what it's been like on the ground. I want to talk to people who were there while it happened, didn't leave, yeah. uh, or have returned. There's no shortage of them. Yeah, a lot of people weathered the storm. Yeah, and and they pushed them out. Yeah, they sure did. And uh, I personally think um, Ukraine is going to be stronger after this, for one, and for two. I think that. They have the mindset, and and this isn't just me speculating. I talk a lot to um, to the Ukrainians, both military that we work with and civilians that I encounter in a coffee shop. Mm-hmm. Um, this is this is the crescendo to an eighty year war for them. I just today was talking to a very articulate uh, Ukrainian guy who was like, you know, a lot of people talk about this like it's an eight month war or. The, the more knowledgeable ones will talk like it's been going on since 2014. He's like, this is an 80-year war. Yeah, He's like, the Red true. Army used to come in to villages when my grandparents were children and do unspeakable things. Uh, when my grandparents were growing up, they didn't have a choice but to speak Russian because they were trying to eradicate the Ukrainian language from the face of the planet, even though it was its own country at the time. They, they he's like this has been population. yeah he's like this has been going on for eighty years, and we made a lot of headway in the Orange Revolution. We made a lot of headway in two thousand fourteen. This is our moment, and we all feel that we all feel that when this is done, it's done. Russia's been put in their place. They've realized. He's like, I'm not saying they won't continue to try to fuck with us. He's like, but they will realize. This isn't just a little colony we can keep trying to pretend is ours. They're legit, they're sovereign, and we need to start planning a life without them. Is is the mental 
motivation of a lot of Ukrainians. Like this is this is our chance. And throw in, you're now on the big stage because you're that underdog that the whole rest of the world has rallied behind. So this is your chance to shine. And they're taking advantage of it. And and they deserve it. I am one of those people that shame on me. I didn't know enough about Ukrainian people or or Ukraine prior to this. I I I say all the time it's it's terrible. I always kind of just assumed that Ukrainians and Russians are pretty similar people. And now if you were to ask me, like, what do Ukrainians and Russians have in common, I would have a much easier time telling you what Ukrainians and Americans have in common, um, you know, because they're a very different mindset and breed well, of people. I think, I think we, I think the world took uh, what Ukraine produces for granted. I mean, we, I, oh, yeah. I mean, the, the first thing I heard in the U.S. about four months ago is, by the way, you know, buy pasta now. Like, right? Yeah. It's like, because most of the grain comes from Ukraine. I'm, I'm, like, I'm right near Illinois and Ohio and all these huge grain producing areas. And they're like, no, man, I don't think you understand. The volume of, of grains, corn, wheat, everything else produced in Ukraine is unbelievable. Yeah. And driving from Odessa to Mikolaev yeah. to I was Kiev. just going to ask, if you drove or if you looked out the train black. windows, like... Black soil. That like soil is seen. unbelievable. I've it looks like it. ground coffee, like ground espresso I've beans. I've never seen anything yeah. like it. And I mean, I have a farm. And I I mean, I have to pick rocks out of every inch. And there's yeah. no, not a rock in it. It's yeah. dark. And they're not poisoning it to make things grow. It's yeah. six feet of black soil yeah. uh, just there. It's uh, incredible. So uh, I didn't think about that. And, and also, we don't even think about the fact that, you know, in the globalized economy that we now live in, um, you know, location, uh, we don't really take, we don't, we don't reverse engineer our products to location anymore. Yeah. And uh, I was trying to find tiles for my kitchen. This is like the simplest, you know, uh, first world problem. Yeah. And I wanted to find a nice green and I couldn't find them anywhere. And this one place had some, I'm like, thank goodness, I finally found a tile that I think is beautiful. And the guy said, I'm sorry, I, I should have taken that off the, uh, the display. And I said, why? He said, well, turns out our supplier said that the, uh, the glaze, the minerals in the glaze come from Ukraine. We'll probably never get it again. And I said, of, of all things, and this was uh, you know, four months ago, so I'd already been to Ukraine. Uh, like of all things, something I just not, oh, yeah. I never would have considered. This tile can't be made because of something that comes from yeah. Ukraine. Joint tape for drywall. I think it's like 60% of the world's supply is made in Ukraine. Sunflowers. Yeah. Well, as a Marine, 80%. as a Marine, I know that you're real worried about that because every Marine I ever knew ate a lot of sunflower seeds. That was your thing. So Sunflower seeds. Were you a sunflower seed guy? Only partially. Oh, okay. I was going to say, every Marine I ever knew was just constantly eating sunflower seeds. You could know where the Marines were because there was a trail of sunflower seeds spit out along the ground. Yeah, the, 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 the husks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes up for the fact that most of them uh, are trying to get off of dipping. Right. Fair enough. Yeah, no, that is something too. Yeah, the G. Uh, We're not even talking the, about the energies portion, which uh, is oh, yeah. huge, yeah. Uh, for, especially for Europe and yeah. and their entire industrial yeah. and oil fields and, uh, and gas fields are in the east, which of course is one of the reasons Russia wanted to seize yeah. those and keep them. That's why they're fighting yeah. seriously there, because if they can control oil and gas in Ukraine and oil and gas out of out of Russia, they pretty much have Europe choked. It's one of the interesting things too that I think is funny is a lot of the same crowd. I shouldn't say funny because it's annoying. A lot of the same crowd uh, in the West 
that'll be the first ones to be like, oh, the United States only goes to war if there's oil involved or if they can get some sort of resource. Those same people are the ones being like, I'll just let Russia keep Crimea and the East. Those people want to be Russia anyways. Just leave them alone. But I'm like, you do realize that's literally why Russia took Crimea so that they could have access to the Black Sea and Luhansk and Donetsk because it's an industrial haven of of natural resources that's it has nothing to do with we're going to protect our russian people that live there no you put those russian people there uh in in force after 2014 specifically because you want to have those natural resources and world war ii as you've already mentioned uh soviet union took almost the entire population out of crimea and distributed into siberia and to their far east and then replaced it with russians and they're like why are there so many russians in crimea yeah well Yeah. Well, history, man. Yeah. Uh, history. Yeah, that was one. There's, I won't, I won't throw his name out there because I used to be a huge fan. But there's a very prominent individual in the United States who likes to say some things on Twitter that make my head spin lately. And uh, stay off that. Was, oh yeah, I learned you, that lesson. I learned that lesson. Anyhow, but he posted uh, basically that. Like, you know, if you look at if you look at populist maps, you know, Crimea and the East, they're all Russian and want to stay Russian. Anyways, we should just. Let Russia have those. As if it's the West decision anyways. That's another pet peeve of mine. Like, this is Ukraine. Like, the West can have an opinion, but you don't decide to give anything back. It's Ukraine. They decide what they want to do. But that was a rabbit trail. Um, Is that it doesn't take a deep dive to read the history about settling an area. And that's been their move. That's been a Soviet move by Russia for a very long time. Lithuania, Georgia, Estonia, all of them. Yeah, repopulate it. And then not only that, if you want to be just super common sense about it, most of the people that stayed when Russia occupied it are going to be the Russians, and most of the pro-Ukrainians are going to get out. So, So just because you look at something that's its current state, which is still exaggerated by Russia, because still currently... There's a lot of pro-Ukrainians in those areas. Um, the numbers that do exist right now are just irrelevant because they were fabricated via settlement and and people evacuating because Russia's occupying the, the territory. So right. you can't use those numbers. It's ridiculous. Crimea especially. And they're still even exaggerated. I mean, there's still a lot of pro-Ukrainians in Crimea and in the East. Yeah. So If they're not being killed... Yeah, well, they're quiet pro-Ukrainians right now because if you voice it, um, and that's one of those things too is they went house to house and killed killed people doing a poll. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, there was um, I don't uh, I want to say it was Mariupol, and I might be getting the place wrong, but irrelevant. Somewhere in the east, uh, back in the beginning, I was talking to uh, a contact I have in Lviv, really good dude, um, who's a psychologist, and when this kicked off pretty much closed down everything he was doing with his practice and it just concentrates on people that are coming from the East, whether they're resettling in Lviv or moving further into Europe, just counseling, being there, being available to counsel. And that tied him into um, taking care of wounded soldiers and, and this sort of thing in Lviv. And he was telling me stories when the Mariupol thing was going down, which for those that don't know, about 80% of Mariupol no longer exists. Yeah. They just destroyed the city. The stories he was telling, that's when I knew I wasn't going home. I had only been here like three days. Mm. And I'm sitting down having coffee with this guy. And uh, 
and he was choking up and I'm starting to choke up now. Just remembering that morning, like just unbelievable. Like, you know, he's like, I, I don't know what to do. He actually messaged me one night. He was like, I don't, I don't know what to do. He's like, this guy's asking like, what's the reason for me to stay alive? I should just, I should just die. I watched both of my young daughters under the age of 10 get raped in front of me. And then they killed my wife and my kids. What do I have to live for? And I don't know what to tell him. I was like, Jesus, like, I don't know what to tell you. And that's a shitty place for me to be in. Cause I like being the guy with the solution. Um, but what do you tell that guy? You know? And that's, that's the part of when Western culture or any culture starts talking about, well, we should do this or we should influence it. You know what? You're not the one living through this situation like they are. Stay the fuck out of it. Yeah. You know, give your support if you feel so inclined. Have your opinion if you feel so inclined. But at the end of the day, Ukrainians are some of the most democracy-hungry human beings I've ever encountered in my life. Uh, George Soros don't give a shit if he put some money to 2014 he didn't create it the Ukrainians created it they wanted it uh, NATO's not trying to expand to the east the Ukrainian people want to be a part of NATO and, and people need to remember that focus that the Ukrainians are living through this the Ukrainians are the ones living these stories the Ukrainians are the ones impressing the entire world with their capabilities um, we talk about the training we're doing over here and the support we give but zero credit needs to come our way like they on their own have done amazing work um and people need to remember that that this is ukraine's war and we can support we can all have opinions but this is ukraine's war and they deserve it they deserve every win they deserve all the credit and uh and nobody needs to be given their damn opinion about what ukraine should settle for well i had to go home and i had to stay home for the most part um but you didn't you sold off everything you had there and yeah. took up residency yeah. here basically yeah. to form this organization. What is the critical need that you're currently filling with, uh, with dark horse? So as we get into winter and as we get into good old, uh, general Sir, Sir uh, taking over what three weeks ago now on October 10th, um, we're continuing training both civilian and, and, uh, Ukrainian military. Um, but we're, we're starting to shift heavier into humanitarian side, specifically evacuations. Um, I mentioned the new general. So, I mean, that's a whole nother podcast you could do right there. I don't know how familiar you are with his history, but he's basically, when you watch the movie about uh, the CIA or former CIA guy and, and, someone sending every hitman they got to try and kill him, but he keeps killing them first. And then in the end, they bring out the guy, you know, this is, this is the ominous name that everybody's scared of. He's the greatest hitman in the world and he's going to kill him. That's what this general is. He's your last wild card that you pull. Um, he was called the butcher of Aleppo for what he did in Syria, which was just murder civilians to make them comply. What's his relationship um, to the Wagner group? Unknown in, 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 in my personal knowledge, it's, I don't know. Um, I would imagine that there's probably a very strong relationship because they have a very similar style of approach. Um, but he, and it wasn't just in, in Syria, he's got a reputation. He was referred to as general Armageddon as well as the butcher of Aleppo. He's just a go after civilians first is his, is his mentality. It's a kill a, kill a will on a, not a military force. Um, this has always been his approach and he was given Southern command in June. So the Kurt, the Kherson fighting, um, he took over the Southern front 
in June, and it was reflected in the way he went directly after me to life and just said enough of, you know, only fighting the military. We're going to start butchering civilians with missiles, try and take out their infrastructure, take, take away their will to keep fighting. Um, and then it was October 9th that Putin came out and announced that he was going to be taking over the entire campaign, that he was in charge of the Russian forces in Ukraine. Six hours later is when Kiev saw its first missile strikes in five or six months, and it wasn't just Kiev. It was, I think the final number was 84 missiles, cruise missiles, were fired at Kiev, Lviv, Ternopil, all over the place. Um, and nonstop since then, he's been targeting civilians and civilian infrastructure. Um, so to answer your question, as it gets colder and colder, and he clearly very intentionally has uh, started targeting electricity and anything that would provide heat, Yep. Um, there's going to be a bigger need for supplies, which, as you mentioned, there's a lot of NGOs supplying that and doing a good job. Um, but obviously, if there's any capacity we can help there, we will. But evacuations, I just came back from being out in the Donetsk area. Um, and who'd you bring back? And there's, a, so that was a, that was a recon deal. That was me going to check a location based on uh, some intel that I got from another organization that works out of Dnipro saying that what has happened is the line shifted uh, after that big counteroffensive, you know, down from Izium and Lehman. And so there's a lot of towns and cities in that area that in the original invasion, there was no conflict. Russia just rolled right over them. So they just went from being Ukrainian to occupied. Um, and obviously there were some of these horror stories that we talk about in these occupied areas, um, but there wasn't direct contact. Now that the line has moved back to there, they're under constant fire. So there's a there's a big need for people getting out of those areas. Mm -hmm. um, so we're we're currently putting together a team to start operating over there and helping people get out. And then, uh, as I said, if you think you know the plan, wait five minutes. You know we've got no shortage of um, of opportunity to train. It's it's a shame we've got a queue, but you have to and you prioritize based on who's most likely to see conflict first, right? Um, and then and then the uh, evacuation efforts. But fortunately, I'm, I'm happy to say we still see uh, a lot of people reaching out saying, I want to come join. So we, we still keep getting warm bodies over here. So it's good. Right. Hopefully that continues. What's well, next for you? Um, my plan constantly changes. Yeah. Uh, I guess I'll be more specific on this trip. You're going to Kharkiv and then we, Kharkiv. Don't need to, we don't need to talk about every place you're going to go. That's pretty bad up sex. So I won't dig too deep into that. But, well, you're not going to put it out until after I'm uh, gone. Yeah, but that's um, true. Yeah. Uh, I'll go to Kharkiv and probably yeah. circle the area a little bit yeah. and then uh, come back to Kiev and head out uh, to leave even home. Um, yeah. You know, I, most of this was support for what Matt's doing, which is, Obviously, yeah. checking into groups like yours and uh, and and the, the Ukrainian response as it's changed, as uh, as the war has changed, as it continues to be uh, to morph into a uh, an offensive war um, with more and more civilian targets, uh, artillery and missile based uh, casualties, and you know the East is going to be a strange place for quite some time. Yeah. What's your biggest takeaway from coming back? And what I mean by that is when you get back to the United States and you're going to have a lot of colleagues say, tell me about it. What are you going to say? Because that's what I want the American people to hear. I've been in an echo chamber over here. I've been here. I've been in it. Um, 
What do the American people not know or understand that you're going to tell them about when you get back? I think the first thing I'm going to do is see what they're telling everybody on the news. Yeah. I'm going to see what everyone's uh, talking about and begin corrective therapy, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, because uh, without, you know, it's, it's so hard without, um, without actually seeing the ground. That's why I wanted to come back. I wanted to feel the air again. I wanted to see the expressions on people's faces. I want to see how society has, uh, has adjusted or repaired itself in the absence of war or in the reoccurrence of it. Yeah. I wanted to get a sense for, uh, you know, uh, the resolve, which I didn't question, but also just to, you know, to visually um, experience a place again that's still, is still a country at war and at the same time trying to prepare to be a country that's free. And you can see yeah. a change from Lviv as you get closer to the east. Yeah. Uh, you know, very different feeling as as you edge toward the front. Yeah. And uh, and also, I wanted to see, okay, what what exactly? You know, America was was uh, for a while uh, very very supportive of Ukrainian efforts and was sending an awful lot of volunteers. What have they done? You know, I wanted to see what you had done. I wanted yeah. to see what uh, these other organizations had done. What's the effect uh, of that support? Is it just one that kind of mysterious, I sent money in, I don't know what happened to it, uh, to I sent money into a place that, that makes IFACs and distributes them to an organization that hands them to soldiers who are, they need they need tourniquets. Yeah. And what's, what's your, I let me that. ask genuinely, like what have you... Uh, What's your takeaway on that volunteer effort? Not specifically talking about what is one of only many, 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 many people in nonprofits working over here. And that's, yeah. that's what I'm doing, but I'm just saying specifically, um, I'm not, not specifically rather the general volunteer effort. Uh, what's your tour been like? What have you, I don't need the specifics of each place, but what's your yeah. overall takeaway? Well, Mikolaev, I saw a soldier come up with a clearly an American supplied IFAC. And when he found out we were Americans, he tapped it and went, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, and so you know, whatever that means to someone far away who funded that, um, yeah. I, I'm going to pass that thanks back um, because he's not kidding. His he, oh. he, dro he drove up in a pickup truck that has been shot up. It, I don't know how it's driving, yeah. but it's full of shrapnel uh, because it's been hit probably multiple times. It's got yeah. bullet holes in it, and uh, you know he's he's in the war, and um, and that's where our support went. Yeah. And, you know, we didn't, we didn't send a soldier, but we reinforced one who is yeah. already there. So that was good to see. Um, and, you know, I, I'm not sure yet. I haven't formed all my thoughts, yeah. but I kind of want to see how things are being played because, you know, there's a whole movement right now to reduce support uh, yeah. by candidates right now in the, uh, in the run for Senate and Congress, which uh, I find insensible and surprising, but Okay, what what is their what is their argument? Uh, yeah. I need I need to find out what that is and um, and you know provide a, a fair and, and reasonable counter to that. Yeah, I typically find it to be a very surface argument, and it's just simple. Everything you know, surface. But I'm saying it's they don't see past the benevolence. Which okay, if you want to be cold and say I don't want to be benevolent anymore, I don't want to just give up our you know, print money off of our uh, treasury department to help people that need it. Let's take benevolence off the table. Like we talked about, how about the axis that is kind of forming over here that hinges on the success or defeat of yeah. Russia? How about the economic impact if Russia were to take over the industrial uh, complex of 
of Ukraine. Like, get selfish about it. I can still give you 30 reasons to keep helping Ukraine. Like, right. even if you take benevolence off the table and say, well, it's not our job to help every country out there. Cool. Take away the benevolence. Sure. I'll still give you 30 reasons. It's in your best interest as a country to uh, make sure that Russia doesn't keep these territories. Yeah. yeah. And as we uh, we seem to get worse at elections, places like this seem to yeah. think that it's far more serious. Yeah. And uh, maybe we can learn that lesson from a place that found a way for it to matter. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, we're uh, probably running out of time. Yeah, friend. I believe so. Thanks for uh, well, We for could talking. probably talk for hours, so maybe we'll do this again at some point. Sure. I have uh, a strong so feeling at some point you'll swing through Ukraine again. I will. I feel like this won't be the last time I'll it's, see you it's in Ukraine. Not. I already know it's not. All right. Well, have safe travels out there, and uh, we'll be in touch. And I really appreciate the time. Yeah. Be well, and thanks for everything you're doing here. Cheers. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying this, please click like, comment below, subscribe. Let us know that we have your support. It means the world to us. And we hope that more people can have their eyes open to what is actually happening in this country by talking to the people who are living through it. Thanks again, and have a great day.